0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. As we approach Second Samuel, we'll be in chapter 2 this morning. I uh, would love for you to turn to that chapter if you have a Bible with you. Um, as you're doing that, I want to ask a, a question, um, kind of to frame our time in God's Word this morning, and that is, um, talking about the will of God, talking about the plan of God, what do you do with your life when the, the Lord's plan for your life takes an unexpected turn? How do you respond in that moment? What is your response when the experience, reality of your life doesn't line up with your hopes, with your dreams, with your plans, the, the way you intended for your life to be? How do you respond to the mysterious providence of God? And that's, a, I think, an important phrase for us, uh, one that I, I want to take a, a moment to, to define, this idea of a mysterious providence. When I say the mysterious providence of God, what I'm referring to is, is those times in your life when God does something that, that might lead to heartache, that might lead to pain, that, that sometimes leads to challenging circumstances, something that, that sometimes leads to tears. And I call this mysterious providence because, in one sense, we, we have to remember that God remains seated on his throne, that God remains completely and utterly in charge. That's what the word providence means. It's this declaration that no matter what comes our way, God is, is still in charge. He's still seated on the throne of the universe. And yet it's more than just this idea of sovereignty. This, uh, when we say sovereignty, we're talking about the fact that God is completely and utterly in charge. And yet when we, when we say providence, we're talking a specific doctrine, a specific view of God. Not just that God is in charge, but providence, we've defined it this way in the past, is, is purposeful sovereignty. So God isn't just in charge, but God has a plan and a purpose for everything that comes our way. Every single thing that we experience, God has a plan. And and that plan, as we look at the unfolding uh, story of, of the Bible, is for God's glory and also for the good of those who follow and trust in him, for his people. That's what we have in mind when we talk about providence. It's this purposeful sovereignty that God has a plan in being in control of all things. And that's a great assurance for us when we experience the unexpected, when we experience the death of a loved one, when we experience the loss of a job, when we experience an unexpected career change or any number of things. And all of these things, it might be a great mystery to us how our pain, our our heartache can be for our good and and can be for his glory. And that's why we qualify this idea of providence as God's mysterious providence. Oftentimes the way that God is at work in our lives is mysterious to us. And yet that does not discount his purposes. The question for us in these times is simply... What do we do when we experience God's mysterious providence, when our lives take unexpected turns, that we experience things we're not particularly interested in, and we're wondering why God has allowed us to experience this, even if it's just a big unknown. We like the familiarity of our lives, and we're now forced into this unknown, this new status quo. And that question, how we respond to the mysterious workings of God in our lives, is is on full display in 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel 2, we started 2 Samuel last week looking at the death of Saul. This comes immediately on the heels of not just the death of Saul, but also how David responds to that. And what we see here is two approaches from two different people on how to respond to God's mysterious providence in our lives. We first, we're going to see David, his humble contentment in the Lord's plan. And then we're going to see Abner. We'll be introduced to who Abner is specifically in a moment. But Abner has this defiant rebellion against the Lord's plan. And we're going to consider each in turn. That'll be our, our focus this morning. Would you pray with me as we approach God's word? Father, there is... Not a single heart in this room that isn't known to you. You know more than we can begin to fathom all the burdens, pains, heartaches, challenges, tears, sorrows, but also the joys, the the victories, the rejoicings, the happiness of every single person in this room. And we ask that as we approach your word, you would speak to us. We trust you, we believe that you will do just that this morning because you're a God who delights to reveal himself to his people, and we thank you for that, God. We ask that as we open your word, you would strengthen us through your spirit to live ever more increasingly in a way that brings honor and glory to your son, to our king, to King Jesus. It's in his name that we are able to pray that we have full access to the throne of grace. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right, as I mentioned, 2nd Samuel comes immediately after the events of uh, chapter 1 in 2 Samuel. This is where we saw David uh, and how he responds to the death of King Saul. The news of Saul's death reaches David. David has been anointed king years earlier by the Lord in First Samuel chapter 16, and now it seems that the path is clear for David to at last ascend to the throne. He has waited He has bided his time. He has sought to honor the Lord with his actions by waiting on God's timing, not on taking things into his own hands. And now we see this moment and we ask, is this the time? Is this the time that God has for David? Let's look at verse one here. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. All signs in David's life at this moment. Just kind of remember where we're at. David, for the last year and a half, has been living among the Philistines in this land, uh, in the city of Ziklag. Ziklag is at a lower elevation, and he's thinking, all right, Saul is dead now, God, should I go up? Should I return to the land of Israel? All of the circumstances seem to say yes, all of the signs... All of this evidence points to this moment, David ascending to the throne, and yet what does David do? He doesn't just assume, he seeks the Lord. For David, it is not enough for him to look at the events of his life and to say, you know what, this makes sense, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. More than becoming king, David desires to honor the Lord, and so first thing he does is he seeks the Lord's guidance. And there is much we can learn from David in this moment, isn't there? David knows that circumstances can be deceiving. More than that, David knows that his heart can twist its perception of those circumstances to be what he wants rather than what the Lord wants. And more than favorable circumstances, David wants the Lord's favor. And so before he makes any move, He seeks God's guidance. Now today, we don't have a high priest that can divine the will of God through Old Testament means. That's what David does here when he inquires of the Lord. He goes to the high priest, Abiathar. Abiathar approaches God and, and inquires of the Lord. Instead, we have a great high priest our King Jesus, who through the Holy Spirit, through his word, through the wisdom of the church, God at work in the midst of his people, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, as we see in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And it's not inherently wrong for us to look at our circumstances and see an opportunity, but before we seek that opportunity, we have to seek the Lord in his word and in prayer and in the wise counsel of the church. We ask ourselves, well, what I do honor the Lord? Is this a wise decision? What are my motives in this area? In short, we follow the example of David. Verse 2. So David went up from there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So David has been told by the Lord, after inquiring of the Lord to go to Hebron, he does exactly what God has said, has asked of him. And so he leaves behind this Philistine city that he's lived in for a year and a half, settles in Hebron. Hebron is located in the center of Judah. Hebron has this important history among the people of Israel. It's no coincidence that David goes to the land of Hebron. He's anointed king in hebron take a step back from this text and look at the idea or or look at where hebron is mentioned other places in the bible the first place you'll see you'll begin to notice is that hebron is the the burial place of the patriarchs the fathers of israel abraham isaac and jacob all buried at hebron their wives buried at hebron david's anointing here in gen or in second samuel chapter two in hebron should draw us back to genesis chapter 12 This promise that God makes to Abraham all the way back, centuries before David, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So centuries before David, God enters into this covenant. A covenant is just an unbreakable relationship and promise with Abraham and his descendants. But this promise isn't just for Abraham alone. We see that this promise is for all the families of the earth. In other words, it was a part of God's plan to bring redemption, to fix a broken creation. And here, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, by tying David to Hebron, to Abraham, the author of 2 Samuel is is making some astonishing claims about how God plans to bless the nations. How God plans to, to bless all the families of the earth. We might ask, how? Well, it's not until we get to the New Testament that we see that it is not through David, it's through the son of David, through Jesus That God's plan is at long last revealed. Anyway, back to our text. David here is anointed king in Hebron. We might think that David would be offended by this development. After all, God has said that David would be king over all Israel. David has waited patiently for years, maybe even decades, for this moment to come. And when he is at long last anointed king, it's not over all of Israel. That's over just one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And if I were David, which is a really good thing I wasn't, or I'm not. If I were David, I would say, hey, God, why do I have to wait any longer? This isn't what you promised to me. Why are you making me wait? How does David handle this unexpected turn in the Lord's plan for his life? Take a look at the rest of verse 4. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So David seems to take his kingship over Judah, but not all of Israel. He seems to take it in stride. He's more concerned with honoring those who, at great risk to themselves, rescued Saul's body from the Philistines so that they could give it a proper burial, so that they could honor the body, the life, the memory of Saul. And so he sends these messengers to Jabesh Gilead, located some 70 miles away, and he praises them for their faithfulness. Now, his language here is extremely covenantal. It's covenantal language. The word loyalty, when he's talking about these men of Jabesh Gilead, they showed loyalty to their lord Saul. It's the same word in Hebrew as this word steadfast love describing the attitude of God toward the men of Jabesh Gilead in verse 6. Exact same word. And we've talked about this word before. This word beneath loyalty, beneath steadfast love, virtually every time we see this word is talking about covenants. It's this word hesed. It's this idea of this unbreakable relationship, unbreakable promise that God makes to his people. And David here is saying that the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they're faithful followers of the Lord because of how they have acted in how they treated Saul. They've shown hesed to Saul. They've acted in a way that God desires for his people to act in light of God's love and commitment to his people. And so David blesses the men of Jabesh-Gilead for their actions. Now, some would point out As we look here at David's actions, that not only is David doing that, but he's also politically savvy. I want you to put yourselves in David's shoes for a second. He is in this moment that Jabesh Gilead has just done at at great risk to themselves. They've gone out of their way to rescue the body of Saul. Saul, of course, is David's rival to the throne. And in the common wisdom of the day, what you would do is you wouldn't reach out with an olive branch to other people who have a claim on the throne, you would instead exterminate them. And some would look at this and say, hey, David is actually being really smart, he's being really wise, this is a political move, because what he's doing is he's reaching out to this group of people who are aligned with his enemy, and saying, hey, why don't you come join me? You've done a good job, but now Saul is dead. Notice what it says in verse 7. And now I'm the king, so join me. And people say, you know what, this is nothing more than just a political move from David to to conjure up support from Saul's old rivals. Or excuse me, of of, um, Saul's old supporters. And my response to that is, so what? Honestly, it would be completely missing the point for us to see here that David is solely acting on the the interests of uh, of just himself. And yet at the same time, David's actions here give us a really good picture of what it means to wait on the Lord. It doesn't mean to just sit on your hands and do nothing. You can be active. You can be initiative in seeking to change the circumstances that you find yourself in and yet we must do so with humble contentment. It doesn't mean that you don't take initiative. It doesn't mean that you don't take action to change a challenging circumstance to your benefit. But ruling over that is a commitment from David to honor the Lord with his actions and leave the results up to God alone. We're not told how the men of Jabesh-Gilead respond to David's um, you know, request or whatever you want to describe it here, based off the rest of this chapter, I, I think that they ignore David's subtle appeal to join his claim to the throne. You know how David responds to that? He remains content to wait upon the Lord for his timing and his plan. We'll see in the rest of this chapter, he remains king over Judah alone for seven and a half years. The text also Goes to great lengths to show us that David took no part in the civil war that is to come between Israel and Judah because David is content to wait upon the Lord and his plan. Now, the question, of course, is is turned to us. What about us? When we face the mysterious providence, sometimes painful providence of God, are we content? Are we willing to wait on the Lord with humble contentment? As we come to the close of these first seven verses, we would each do well to ask of ourselves, am I content to wait on the Lord's plan for my life? Am I content to wait on the Lord's plan for my life? Am I content with the Lord's mysterious providence am i content to wait on god to change my circumstances in his timing and according to his plan not mine and when i see david here how much of my own heart do i see am i content with the lord and his plan of course david's humble contentment is contrasted here with abner's defiant rebellion against the lord's plan that's what we see in the rest of this chapter. Abner was King Saul's army commander. He was also King Saul's cousin. And the rest of this chapter looks at how, how Abner responds to the death of Saul and the ascension of David. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took ish the son of Saul, And brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead. And the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. How does Abner respond to the death of Saul? Well, what he does is he goes and finds the last surviving son of Saul, and he retreats across the Jordan River. Let's go ahead and throw that map up. He retreats retreats across the Jordan River to this place, Mahaniam, and he sets up this rival kingdom. This is on its own, probably doesn't necessarily reveal a rebellion against the Lord's plan, except we have two other additional pieces of information. First, Abner's actions in in chapter 2, and chapter 3 of 2 Samuel suggests that he is really the one who's in charge, not Ishbosheth. Not once are we told that Abner acts at the command of Ishbosheth. It's always Abner who is acting, he is the one who is taking the initiative. 2 Samuel chapter 3 actually gives us a bit of an insight into their relationship, verse 11. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So, who's really in charge? Ishbosheth or Abner? Abner seems to set up this puppet king that can do whatever he wants, and he's going to rule his cousin Saul's kingdom through his nephew Ishbosheth. Second, we see that Abner was aware that David was the Lord's anointed king. And yet he just didn't care. He didn't care about God's plan. Abner would have been present when Saul declared to David, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 24 Saul said to David, And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Even more explicitly, Abner confesses that he knows the Lord's plan for David. In chapter 3, we're going to see that Abner uh, abandons ish and he says this to Ishbosheth: God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over, all, over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. So you see the heart here? The focus of this chapter is we have two kings. We have David and Ishbosheth, but that's not the, the, the contrast here. The contrast is between David and Abner, these two men with radically different approaches to the plans of God when it doesn't go their way. David humbly waits on the Lord to accomplish his plans, to accomplish his purposes. Abner, in spite of knowing God's plan, just doesn't care doesn't care what God's plan is, defiantly rebels against the Lord's plan for his people, sets up this rival kingdom, and for all intents and purposes, that rival kingdom is his. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahaniam to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So at some point during the split reign of David and Ishbosheth, Adam, or Abner goes on the offensive. He travels from Mahaniam and the, the Transjordan area across the Jordan River, 70-some miles away from David. And he leaves that location and he travels into... This place called Gibeon. Let's go ahead and, if that map's not up, show this map. That'll show us what exactly is happening here. Gibeon is only 25 miles away from Hebron. More than that, it's only about five miles away from Judah itself, from David's territory. So it looks like Abner, by making this move to Gibeon with an army, is about to go on the offensive against David and Judah. Even if he's not going to attack David and Judah, Gibeon is only three and a half miles away from Gibeah. Are you taking notes? Because it's confusing for me too. It's only three and a half miles away from Gibeah. Gibeah was the location of Israel's capital under King Saul. Saul. So maybe he's not going to attack Judah. Maybe he's making a play for the former capital under Saul so that he can move Ishbosheth and assert his claim to the throne over all of Israel in Gibeah. Either way, this moment right here is this form of Cold War hostility toward David. Significantly, the text doesn't tell us that David sends out men Sends out his army commander to confront, jo- to confront him. Instead, it is his nephew, Joab, who goes and confronts Abner. It appears, as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 2, that Joab acts completely unilaterally and he confronts Abner at Gibeon. Standoff ensues. Pick up in verse 14. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so that they fell down together. Therefore, the place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. In ancient times, it was a common belief that battles between two different armies were ultimately just a battle between their two different gods. And the victor, the stronger God's army, would assure that he would be the one who would win the battle. And if a god could prove his supremacy over another god through two different armies, he could just as easily do it in a one-on-one battle. And so it was oftentimes preferable to have what was called representative combat to declare the victor. So rather than having two armies fight against one another to determine which god was supreme, in ancient times you would just have sometimes just one verse 1, to prove the supremacy of a God. Now, it's important to recognize that even though Israel oftentimes believe this, the Bible rejects that term, that that view of things. And yet, that's what takes place here in this moment. And yet, rather than the battle between two different gods, it appears that this battle is actually to determine the Lord's favor. Whose side is God on? And so to, to spare a widespread battle, they choose 12 from each side to fight one another. God has already spoken, however. He's already revealed who his chosen king is back in verse 1, multiple times in 1 Samuel. And so God sees that there's no, no need to say it again, especially on Abner's terms, Joab's terms. If anything, the silence of God in this moment, the the pointless slaughter of these men of Israel and Judah is all the message that they need. And yet no one is willing to listen to the Lord and the first battle of Israel's civil war breaks out because of a refusal to listen to the Lord, refusal to listen to God's plan. Verse 18. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear. So the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to that place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. This battle is a great defeat for the people of Israel. So they begin to retreat. They go back to where they were, you know, headquartered. They retreat to the north and to the east. And yet, rather than letting them escape, David's three nephews, who are the leaders of his army, here, Joab, Abishai, Asahel, they pr- press the attack. Asahel was particularly fast, and so he's running after Joab. He's steadily gaining on him. Joab tries to dissuade him, say, you know, don't, you don't want to do this. Could turn aside, but Asahel, it's probably in pursuit of his own personal glory to, to actually capture the, the commander of um Ish-bosheth's army. He doesn't listen. And so finally, jo, or Abner strikes out. He doesn't turn and face him. He just stops, holds the butt of his spear backward, and actually Asahel is impaled by himself on it. And you might be saying, how on earth did that happen? How can the butt of a spear impale a man? Well, archaeological evidence shows the butt of a spear was actually encased in metal and it was sharp so that you could stick it in the ground. That way you wouldn't ruin the head of the spear. And this sharpened end would have been more than enough for him to kill Asahel. Now, look at the, we'll look at the significance of this moment next week because this actually plays into what we'll see next week in chapter 3. But for now, let's go ahead and continue in verse 24. Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you, let, you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up their pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Joab and Abishai, they fly into a rage because of their brother's death, and they want revenge on Abner, and so they pursue him for the rest of the day until the sun sets. As the sun is setting Abner's army, they regroup, and he calls for everyone to come to their senses. What are we doing? This is, this is foolish. Everyone, what are we doing? And, and that's really rich, coming from Abner, the guy who started this whole thing, by installing a puppet king in defiance of the Lord's plan. And yet, Joab listens. His army listens. The fighting ceases. Verse 29. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Ereba. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahaniam. And Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from from David's servants 19 men plus Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night. And the day broke upon them at Hebron. So both armies, they return home. Army of Judah stops in Bethlehem to bury Asahel. And the final casualty numbers are are sobering, especially for Abner's army. At the end of chapter 2, both armies have returned home. And we're left with this glimmer of hope that this civil war is actually going to just be a battle. And this, this ceasefire that Abner has called for is going to bring everyone to their senses. Civil war is avoided. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. The conclusion of this count is actually found in, in chapter 3, verse 1. And there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. This long civil war lasts probably the entirety of Ishbosheth's two year reign. It breaks out. David steadily is gaining power and strength. Abner's kingdom is gradually losing more and more ground. And here in this verse, we see the utter futility of rebelling against the Lord. Abner has rebelled against the Lord and his plan. And it's completely a pointless move from Abner. In spite of all of his efforts, it is utterly useless to rebel against the Lord and his plan. Because the Lord is going to accomplish his purposes. We would do well to take that lesson to heart. When we come face-to-face with God's mysterious providence, and His plan doesn't line up with ours, how are we going to respond? That's the question of the second half of this chapter. When the Lord's plan doesn't align with mine, how will I respond? How will I respond when God's plans are not my plans? Listen to the warning of Abner here from this chapter. When the Lord's mysterious providence is bitter... Do not become bitter yourself. When we look at Abner, how much of ourselves do we see? You see, in God's kindness, he has given us a glimpse of the futility of opposing him and his plan in this passage. And a defiant rebellion against opposition to God might not result in immediate failure, we can be confident that just like Abner, just like the people of Israel, it is pointless to act, to reject the Lord who rules over the entire cosmos. In the end, it will be utterly pointless and useless. In the end, the Lord's plan and purposes and timing will prevail, not our own. And so we have to ask ourselves, when the Lord's plan does not align with mine, how will I respond? As is the case every week that we've been in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, the broader context of the Bible takes our gaze from David and turns it to Jesus. David here is this one who is humble and content to wait upon the Lord, upon the Lord's timing, upon the Lord's plan, and he's a forerunner of the son of David who gladly waits upon the Lord, even at great cost to himself. I, you only have to look at the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to see the same type of heart that we see from David. Hours before the cross, Jesus prays that there would be a different way that, that God would find a different way to accomplish his purposes if it meant that Jesus could avoid the cross. Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You ever consider this is the heart of Jesus in this moment? He knows full well what awaits him. He doesn't want to go to the cross. He doesn't want to drink the cup of God's wrath. He doesn't want to be separated from his father. He doesn't want to walk the road to Calvary. He says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Here we have the longings of the son of God to avoid a judgment he does not deserve. And yet at the end of his prayer, we see that more than all of that, he wants to do his Father's will. He wants to remain faithful to his Father. He's content with his Father's will. He will do his Father's will. Before Jesus is nailed to a cross at Calvary on Friday, he nails his own will to a cross in Gethsemane on Thursday. And David's contentment to wait upon the Lord and the Lord's plan pales in comparison to the son of David and his willingness to wait upon his father and his father's plan, even when that meant great suffering and pain. Jesus is indeed a better king, the king who will make all things new once more. But there's, there's more to this text. Not only does this passage force us to look to Jesus' faithfulness as we've seen, it also forces us to examine our own hearts, how we respond to the Lord's plan, how we respond to the Lord's timing in our lives, especially when the Lord's plan, His mysterious providence means pain and heartache. And that's the core of this passage, a question I hope each and every one of us takes home, takes to heart, each and every season, am I content with the Lord's plan? Am I content with the Lord's timing? Am I rebelling against it? Am I content with the Lord? It's not uncommon for us like David to not understand what God is doing in our lives. Why does he allow us to go through trials? Why does he allow us to go through challenges? And yet also like David, we have the opportunity to follow him faithfully and contentedly no matter what we face. Over the last few weeks, I've been reading through the book of Job. I think Job is one of those books that you really should just read in one sitting because it, it it's just too hard to read over the course of, you know, several weeks just like me because then you don't miss or because then you miss kind of what, what the, the overarching story is about. It's it's so much more powerful when you just sit down and read it all together. And, and the, the narrative of of, of Job, tells us, you know, Dave, or Job is, Job, Job loses everything he has. He loses just about all of his possessions, his children, he's afflicted with a body that is wasting away, and he has no idea why. We understand why, but Job doesn't. And for 36 chapters, this is the summary of Job, for 36 chapters, Job basically says why. And that's not fair. And his friends prove to be really rotten friends because they say, well, it's probably your fault. And for 36 chapters, that's what takes place. And then at the end of the book, you get to chapter 38, and God at last speaks. And you know what God says? He looks at Job and he says, are you God or am I? And the message of Job, when you take it as a whole, is simple, but it's, it's life-altering. It's that we are not God, and we are not guaranteed an answer to the mysterious providence of God. You may not know why God has ordered things the way he has in your life to cause you pain and to bring him glory, but the message of Job is equally clear that this God is still worth trusting. He's still committed to His glory and to your good. And when that takes root in your lives, you begin to see, not always, but in increasing measure, that that answer can be good enough. Because He is God and I am not. We can be content to live in the mystery of His plan for my life. Am I content with the Lord's plan, the Lord's timing, or am I rebelling against it? Am I content with the fact that God is God and I am not? No matter what mysterious, painful providence may come my way, he is still committed to his glory and my good. Let's pray. Father in in every season help us to look to you to trust in you help us to be content in who you are and your plan for us help us God To be more like David, to be more like the son of David, humble and content to wait on you. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.